This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. host of the remnant podcast brought to you by the dispatch and dispatch media um as folks know because i keep telling them we are racking and stacking um episodes so that i can leave town and i had something on the books for a very long time and then realized that it was when i was like literally going to be en route uh to the old world and so uh out of a great graciousness and generosity of spirit uh matt lewis agreed to record on a Saturday. So we are recording on Saturday afternoon at three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and, but I wanted to have him on for a long time. A lot of listeners were appalled when they found out that he had never been on. And then he came out with the, it announced that he was working on this book. And I was like, all right, when the book comes out, we have to have him on. So he's, he's on the book is coming out probably by the time you hear this, it'll be out. Certainly most important thing, it'll be purchasable wherever you find uh, quality books. And the book is Filthy Rich Politicians, The Swamp Creatures, Latte Liberals, and Ruling Class Elites Cashing in on America. Matt Lewis, who's also a senior columnist for the Daily Beast, welcome to The Remnant. Hey, Jonah. Good to be here. Um, I hope that wasn't too much throat clearing of an intro for you, but um, I figured I'd just get it all out there. I'll just lay my cards on the table. I'm glad that all of my uh, patch through phone calls and letters to the editor and my campaign to get on the remnant finally paid off. Yeah, it was weird that all the handwritten notes had the same handwriting. Um, <laughs> and I kudos to you for driving to all those different zip codes to mail them from different places. All right. So the official first question in a situation like this is what's your book about? So it's about how the rich get elected and the elected get rich. And, um, you know, I think both questions and both topics are interesting. Obviously, the latter part is is more, I think, important, right? The sense that politicians are using their perch to feather their nest is, I think, corrosive. Um, There's a sense out there that the game is rigged. I think this is contributing to the lack of trust in institutions and elected officials. Um, so I think this is a serious thing. I tried to write a, the book is hopefully kind of fun and funny, but it's a serious topic. Um, I, I think that uh, whether it's things like insider trading, spreading the wealth around to family members, uh, or the revolving door of going into lobbying, um, you know, or just the fact that your average member of Congress of the the lower, you know, the lower house, the House of Representatives, your average member of Congress is 12 times richer now than the average American citizen. Like, I think all of these things are combining uh, to to uh, kind of persuade a lot of Americans that the game is rigged. 
Yeah. So let's, I mean, I, I, I like the way you phrase it about how the rich get elected and the elected get rich because they're not necessarily the same thing. Right. I mean, like I, there's a vulgar Marxist, you know, uh, habit in American politics that they think that the really rich politicians do everything in politics to get richer when in reality they, that doesn't really work with a lot of human psychology or sociology is like, once you have $250 million in FU money, <laughs> you don't, you, and you, if you wanted 500 million, you would have stayed in the business that you were in. You wouldn't have gone into politics. So going into politics for a lot of these people is a vanity play or a patriotic play, right? I mean, I, there could be both, you know, but it's like people who thought that Dick, that, that, that Dick Cheney was orchestrating the Gulf War to make money off of oil just completely misunderstood Dick Cheney's psychology and how these things kind of work. But at the same time, it seems to me like if you don't have a lot of money, it must be really hard to resist legal. We'll get to the illegal stuff in a minute. Legal opportunities to get rich by virtue of your status as a politician. And that's a lot of what's in the book. I mean, I was going through the book and there's just a lot of that. The scandal is not what's illegal, but what's legal kind of stuff. Yeah, totally. Uh, almost everything. Almost everything is legal. It's like the banality of you know, politics or something. Um, most of it, most of the way that politicians get rich is, is perfectly legal, uh, or gray areas. Hardly any, I I hardly even touch on like outright illegal things in this book, because obviously it's like, that's not a problem. It's already illegal. Maybe we need to enforce them better. The things in this book, uh, are generally things that are very perfectly legal. Um, you know, look, so why do rich people run for office? Uh, I, I I think it's rarely the nefarious thing that some people think about. I think that, you know, there's the transitive property of expertise. They think that because they've been really successful in one industry, military, business, whatever, they can apply that to politics. I think it's also the same reason that, that rich people buy, you know, rocket rides or media outlets or sports teams, right? They're, they're bored and or they want to give back. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there's like a lot of pretty good reasons, actually. You know, that, like, they may be misguided. And, and again, it may be that like um, that they really don't know what they're doing in politics. But I think a lot of it is, is you know, admirable. And in fact, I think like if, I, if I were super rich. I think I'd probably be on a beach drinking pina coladas. Like, I don't know if I'd want to give back to the degree that some of these people do. So I I don't necessarily think it's, it's like inherently bad. I will say one thing is that you kind of have to be rich to get elected to that. Like I was talking, my wife is a Republican political fundraiser whose clients include, you know, many famous conservative Republican politicians. And we live in West Virginia. And a few months ago, you know, when I was writing this book, we were going for a walk. And I was saying, you know, like in West Virginia, um, my congressman is running for the Senate seat against Joe Manchin. So there's an open seat, uh, open house seat. And I was saying, like, you know, if I couldn't run right now, I could not run for Congress in West Virginia, because I'm not Trumpy enough. But like, I was saying, like, in a different in a different world, like maybe I could be running for this seat. And my wife is like, oh, oh no, you couldn't. You, you don't have enough money. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I've been in politics for 15 years. I've got a lot of friends and, and you're you're a professional fundraiser. How can you say that? And she's like, well, 
if you came to me and asked me to, to raise money for you, I would tell you, come back and talk to me when you have either $300,000 that you were willing to self-fund, or if you can raise from your own Christmas card list, $300,000, then we can start to talk about me fundraising, like introducing you to lobbyists or PACs. So I think that's another part of it. It's, it's that you kind of nowadays have to be rich to, to run. And even, you know, Jonah, even the populists, like Marjorie Taylor Greene is worth like $5 million, right? So it, that's kind of the world that we're in. Yeah, so, but like when you say everything, almost everything is legal, um, and I wasn't trying to say that you were exposing lots of crimes, although some of the Daryl stuff, eh. <laughs> um, but um, Never uh, been convicted. <laughs> never convicted, yeah. Um, it's sort of like in the stripes when they say, have you ever been convicted for a major crime? Convicted? <laughs> no, no, not convicted. Um, so, but um, the Denny Hastert thing that, I mean, I, I don't know if I, these days, I'm sure you have this experience as we become elder statesmen, is you read things and you're shocked by them. And then you have to ask yourself, did I know that and forget <laughs> right. it? Or did I never know it? But the thing about Hastert, you have this thing in there about Hastert, Going in with some buddies in his district for a um, l- buying land with some sort of blind trust LLC type thing, knowing that he was going to put through an earmark that put through federal funding for highway stuff that was going to wildly increase the value of the land. Um, is that legal? I mean, do, am I getting the facts right? A and B is 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 can congressmen? I mean, forget that earmarks are kind of discontinued, but not whatever. But let's say earmarks were still around. Was it legal then? My understanding is yes. Uh, certainly unethical. Um, and in my book, we actually talk about legal graft. And, and, and uh, so, look, is it possible that someone could dig up some like obscure way that they could have prosecuted Hastert for doing this? Possibly. But by and large, this was how the game was played. And there's like weird stuff. Uh, you may know this, Jonah, but but I think a, like a lot of, of of our listeners probably don't realize that until like 1981, this is a different topic, but but interesting to me. You, if if you were a member of Congress, you could raise like millions of dollars for your campaign, and then you could retire, and you could keep that money, right? Personally. You right. didn't have to give it away to charity. You didn't have to give it to other campaigns. So it was the Wild West. And I realized Denny Hastert was, only, it was, it's only been, what, 10 or 15 years ago or something that he was speaker, I guess 15 years that he was speaker of the house. It feels like a million years ago. But uh, he did, you know, and, and, and by the way, he needed the money, right? He needed mm-hmm. the money because it turns out he was actually paying off a uh, person that he had allegedly molested. I think allegedly, maybe not even allegedly. I don't think we have to say allegedly maybe. anymore, right? I'm so He's, used to saying it, but apparently yeah. he had been. So. Well, because in part, I mean, first item, first evidence against saying allegedly is he paid yes. the guy to keep it quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and then he went to jail for various things like that. So, um, all right. So like, you know, walk me through how Harry Reid got so rich. Well, um, by the way, I thought it was interesting, right? Harry Reid, former Senate Majority Leader, Denny Haster, former House Speaker around, around the same time. Uh, I don't even know that I could walk you through how Harry Reid got rich. It is 
incredibly complicated. Um, but it is very, very sketchy. Um, and he's never really been held account to it. Um, you know, I think Sharon Angle, who ran against him like in 2010 or something, tried to bring it up. That's one of the interesting things is it almost never works, even though I argue that this behavior, uh, land deals, as was the case with Harry Reid and Denny Hastert, um, I think is corrosive and undermines trust in our institutions and our elected officials. The voters very rarely will actually punish a politician for doing it. Um, but uh, yeah, it, Harry Reid, you know, it, it's, it's a very complex deal, but essentially it's in the same neck of the woods as Denny Hastert. It's using his position, uh, knowing inside information about land speculation and then profiting wildly off of it and never being held accountable. So in, in, in most of these cases, is it, how much of it is insider information and how much of it is, I'm a local, I'm a chief investment officer for the local bank and I got some real estate guys. One guy owns part of a mall. Another guy owns some restaurants and blah, 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 blah. And we want to develop something down by the waterfront having a congressman or a senator as part of the investor group is going to get everyone to return our phone calls is going to get every bureaucrat to sort of think twice about drowning us in red tape. And so it's not insider information. It's just having insider flex to, to, to as a, as a sort of for bragging rights and also sort of for, for keeping the wheels moving. How much of it is that kind of thing? And how much of it is, Hey, I know the government is about to do something. I can monetize it. Well, I think that there are these gray areas, right? And it's seductive and tempting. And I think that what you're just describing is kind of what I would call like old school corruption. The big deal right now, Jonah, I think is insider trading in the stock market. And I'll give you, let me give you a couple examples uh, of Nancy Pelosi that I think will speak to, to the question. Um, so in 2020, her husband, it's, it's never Nancy Pelosi, by the way, who does the trading. It's Paul Pelosi. And I'm, you know, we, we have to take their word that there's no pillow talk or she doesn't tell him anything. Uh, so in 2020, Paul Pelosi, um, basically buys, uh, options of hundreds of thousands of dollars of Tesla stock. Five weeks later, just five weeks later, after buying these call options, Joe Biden signs an executive order announcing that we're going to transition uh, our fleet, state, local, federal fleets to zero emissions vehicles. You can imagine what happened <laughs> to the price of Tesla stock, right? It went up big time, right? So uh, maybe that's a coincidence, okay? One year later, Paul Pelosi uh, exercises options on, I think it was $10, millions of, $10 million of Microsoft stock. This time, it's two weeks later, <laughs> the U.S. Army announces uh, that, that they're going to do a deal with Microsoft. The Mi Microsoft is going to provide the augmented reality headsets for the U.S. Army. Now we're talking about possibly billions of dollars over the next decade. So I think the land speculation is kind of quaint. You know, the stuff that, that like Harry Reid and Denny Hastert, 
that's kind of like, I mean, there's actually, actually an old episode of Andy Griffith where like the mayor is you know, like buying land by the highway or something, you know, and it's kind of laughed off by Andy and Barney. I mean, that's quaint. I think the big thing now has been insider trading the stock market and actually cryptocurrency, uh, maybe the cutting edge thing uh, that Madison Cawthorn, the uh, former first term member of Congress, uh, was, was speculating there. But um, it's not. So in 2012, Congress passed the Stock Act, which technically made it illegal. It wasn't illegal before, but it's illegal now to engage in insider trading in Congress. But the problem is, problem is, it's nearly impossible to police. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, it's nearly impossible to police given the way the law is written now, right? Because like this is one of these only this is one of the only areas where I am kind of Elizabeth Warrenny about anything I can think of, right? And in part, it's because I have some friends who are in like private equity and Wall Street stuff, and um, they are absolutely scandalized by how the regulations on them about insider trading and um, and full disclosure and and keeping you know and separating you know different sources of information and different divisions that are working with different parties, all this kind of stuff, right? Like I have one friend who's a big GOP donor who just won't give to uh, state politicians because New York state's rules about giving to politicians. If you have potentially economic interests based in that state for whatever reason, like you have to do 10 times more disclosure, he just doesn't do it. Right. And so it's just for federal officers. Anyway, my point is he always used to say to me, he's like, look, like I get some of these rules. I think some of them are really bad, but like there are all these rules about how I deal with insider information if I should get it. And the people who create the insider information, literally like the people who award the contracts, who write the regulations, who can with the tiniest change in wording in a, in a, in a regulation or a law, or even just by issuing a press release sometimes can move the market in significant ways. They're allowed to buy stocks. And I don't, I mean, I honestly, I don't get it. I, I mean, like, why can't congressmen and senators put up in, you know, just index them to the, what is it? The um, NASDAQ or whatever. You're, or getting, not, you're getting ahead of me. My, my sequel is going to be filthy rich bureaucrats. So, <laughs> uh, it's a whole bunch of people who are you know, cashing in. Oh, so do, but I mean, is there actual evidence of like bureaucrats making money off of this stuff? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. That, you know, I mean, I'm just being, people, I thought, I thought you yeah. were teasing me about something very exciting there. No, but I, I don't get the argument for why on the merits, I don't get the argument. I get the argument that they, all of Nancy Pelosi's and Kevin McCarthy's conference members would lose their gourds if you tried to tell them that they couldn't trade stocks anymore. But I, I, I don't get why. I mean, anyway, I, I, yeah. I, I'm on team AOC on this kind of stuff. And I, and it makes me uncomfortable. So I'm always looking for a reason to get off. Well, no. And so, you know, it's interesting. I'm there. I'm, I'm with you there, Jonah, on that. And, and, and I'll tell you what, what's interesting to me about, let me say the name of the book, Filthy Rich Politicians, which is available now. Please get it. Um, the thing about Filthy Rich Politicians is that some people will probably think, oh, Matt Lewis has gone all populist now. Like he's, He's on that populist bandwagon. But as I noted sort of at the top of the show, my whole premise for this is um, 
is not that I want to like start a revolution against the bourgeoisie. Um, it's I want to preserve this miracle, as 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 someone might call it. Um, I believe that we have a great country and a great system. Um, and I but but I I also believe uh, that one of the things that's contributing to undermining trust in the system, in the institution, and in the elected officials is the sense that the game is rigged. Um, and we need to have some, I think, reforms to, to bolster the system. So I would ban the trading of, stock, uh, of stocks. I don't think members of Congress should be trading stock. Now, if you want to own a mutual fund, mutual funds, that's per- perfectly fine, right? But you shouldn't be trading stock because if nothing else, there's the appearance of impropriety. I mean, and this is bipartisan. I could tell you Republican stories too. Um, but what the pol- whether Nancy Pelosi was engaging in insider informa- insider trading or not, it looks swampy. It looks sketchy. It undermines trust uh, in politics. And so I don't look if nobody's telling you you have to go to Congress. You don't have to be a congressman. I don't think it's asking too much that while you are here, while you're serving we the people, that you refrain, you and by the way, you and your spouse refrain uh, from betting on the stock market. All right. So let's 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 talk about the Bidens for a second as a brief segue into ranker punditry. I just wrote recently that I've kind of kept my powder dry on all of this because there are a bunch of things that I think every reasonable person, regardless of party, and like there's no Democrat I've met in the CNN green room who hasn't said, yeah, the Hunter stuff looks bad. You know, I mean, like everybody can agree on that. Right. And everyone can agree that Hunter's somewhere between a tragic and a villainous, you know, creature, broken person, lots of demons, lots of mistakes, corrupt in a lot of different senses. I I don't think anybody can dispute any of that. How much of it do you think actually touches Joe Biden himself? And how do you think they have handled the optics of it? I think that so we're this is I'll put on my uh, rank punditry cap right now. We'll switch the author cap back on in a second. Okay. Don't worry. Yeah. All right. I like I like punditry. Um I, I actually think that they've handled it about as well as they could. Um because I think Joe Biden, for whatever reason, has has decided that there will, you know, a hunter is his priority. And in a way there there's a noble part of that. Um, but I think, you know, if I were advising Joe Biden, like I wouldn't have had Hunter come to a state dinner, let's say, like maybe those aren't great optics on the heels of, of I guess it was on the heels of the story about um, Hunter Biden's uh, out of wedlock child uh, and, and Joe Biden not acknowledging. Oh, I thought it was the day after they reached the plea deal where he got the su- the sweetheart deal. Even worse. Yeah, right. Even right. Worse. That, I, mean, I think it's even worse, but I mean, yeah, I guess reasonable one people is, will differ on yeah, that. One has to do with kind of. <laughs> character uh and, yeah. and one has well they both do anyway different but horrible um so but i don't think joe biden will change his mind on that like i think biden has kind of decided like hunter hell or high water and again there's something I'm, as a father of two boys i really hope they turn out better than hunter biden but there's something um there's something admirable about it um but look what's interesting to me is that um, you know, Joe Biden for many years was actually was one of the poorer members of Congress, at least according to his disclosure forms. Like if he's the quote unquote big guy 
and he's got secret bank accounts that we don't know about. I, I can't speak to that, but he really seemed to cash in right after he left the vice presidency. He made about fifteen million dollars, and all things like, you know, again, it's it's the banality of 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 politics, right? He made money on things like book deals, being a professor, um, giving speeches, like that kind of stuff. He cashed in, but Joe Biden has a history of spreading the wealth around to his family and for his family cashing in. It's not just Hunter, right? He's got these two brothers, uh, James and Frank. Both of them have been cashing in on the Biden name and on Joe's positions for decades. And I went back and looked, there was a, there's an article in The Atlantic that said that in 1988, when Joe Biden ran for president, he raised about $11 million. 20% of that money went to Biden family members or companies that they worked for. So uh, Biden may not have been that rich, but we're talking about like 25 or 30 years of his family profiting from Joe Biden's political career. Again, it's all conjecture here, right? I mean, it's not all conjecture, but it's like motives and what's going on behind the scenes is a lot of speculation. And I'm willing to give Biden the benefit of the doubt that this is about protecting Hunter. It is entirely possible that he could, he could still not be criminal, right? It could still not be that Biden has taken bribes and all that kind of stuff. But this is more about protecting the name Biden in Biden's own mind, right? I mean, Biden... And he may not be in, I don't want to say his right mind, but he may not be operating at 100%. Yeah, he may well. not be his best self, yes. I think, right? Well said. Well said. So it's kind of like, I mean, I think this is true of all ethnicities, but there's there are a lot of examples of it in sort of culture and literature about Irish, right? You know, like you think of the Kennedys, this kind of thing where you, you know, like I remember Joe Biden saying, I give you my word as a Biden and thinking like, like, oh, he double dog dared us, right? And no, I didn't, I, I was doubting him until he said he gave me his word as a Biden. And then I have no choice but to think he's telling the <laughs> truth, right? And I don't know if he thinks that that's the way people actually hear it or if it's shtick, but I think he wants people to think that he, that the Biden family is known for great honor and integrity and all of these kinds of things. And it's sort of like the Kennedys. I mean, it's like the Kennedys. And then the Bidens are no Kennedys, but like the Kennedys have this, the, the deepest Kool-Aid drinkers about the cult of the Kennedys are the Kennedys. And they could be furious at their own kids behind closed doors for making the name look bad, but they all rally around in public because for the good of the, the larger family name or the brand or whatever. And so it may be that Joe is disgusted and furious and belittles Hunter all the time in private, but they have to maintain appearances in public. I mean, we know that Donald Trump had a similar attitude. I mean, I, I'm not, and again, I'm not saying that we, that we know this about Biden, right? But I think it's one of the more, it's one of the plausible theories. You know, Donald Trump supposedly said to his, you know, his wife, I can't name Don, Don Jr. Because what if he turns out to be a loser? Um, you know, like, like, some dads can be jerks like that. And, and, and again, we don't have evidence about Joe necessarily. We have some evidence that Joe might be a jerk. We don't have evidence that he's a jerk dad, which is yeah. a different thing. I've tried to inculcate a little bit of this in my family in a slightly different way. 
I'm from a very kind of humble, you know, working class, rural family. Um, but I've got these two sons and, and I tried to like, how, how can I instill in them a sort of pride, like in a healthy way? And so I need to get back. I haven't done this in a while, but I used to say things like, when you walk out of that door, you're representing not just you, but you're representing the Lewis family. And, you know, this is total, I mean, I don't want to say total BS because it's, it's true, but like, I'm literally like going out of my way to, to create this, this sense uh, of, of some nobility of being a Lewis. I think that's entirely honorable and good parenting. I just want to be clear about that. I, you know, but there's difference, there's a difference between no offense to you or to me, like, but we aren't ongoing political franchises. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think, you know, it's, it's, it, you're trying to teach them with, with a sense of obli intergenerational obligation and all that kind of stuff. You know, the Kennedys in particular, but you know, is this, it's more of a don't screw with the brand kind of thing. Cause this is our business model um, going on. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I know this. It just, I feel like it sometimes when I, well, that, that happens when my son start, uh, get on social media someday and start tweeting embarrassing things. And then yes. that's when I, that's when I lower the hammer on them based on business interests. But that's for right. now, for now it's about nobility. Yeah. Um, when they, when they start live tweeting how you behave at home. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Not giving them any ideas. <laughs> so um, I, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be the guy, the whataboutism guy, but I can hear some of my, some of my uh, Twitter followers saying, but what about Trump? Mm -hmm. So uh, I do want to say that, I don't know if you remember, like a month or two ago, there was a story about um, how Repub you know, House Republicans were investigating the Biden family. And they, uh, they found these, these bank records where foreign countries were uh, laundering millions of dollars to various Biden family members, and they were doing it in such a way that it looks very suspicious. They're obviously attempting to hide it. And if this turns out to be true, and it very well may, like that is very concerning. And yet, <laughs> worst case scenario, we're talking about like $10 million given to the Biden family. Whereas, in fairness, Jared Kushner... <laughs> Secured this you know, two billion dollar investment into his private equity firm from a fund led by the Saudi Crown uh, Prince. Two billion dollars. So once again, and I I do not want to like diminish from the seriousness of our current president's appear certainly appearance of of you know impropriety. Once again, Trump trumps him like quantitatively and qualitatively. Oh, and I, I have no dispute about that. And I, I think even before the the Saudi, you know, investment thing, just how much money they were making, you know, Jared and Ivanka were making on the job or Trump's refusal to sever his business ties, you know, like he, like he said he would. I mean, there are just a, a gazillion things where, or the, the truly grotesque sort of stuff with the hotel where everybody understood that you couldn't get a meeting, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, unless you stayed at his hotel and paid, you know, you know, excessive rates and all that kind of stuff, but to put your author hat back on. Right. So like you said at the very beginning that weirdly these kinds of conflicts of interest, unethical, but not necessarily illegal, just kind of gross 
business dealings. Very rarely do politicians lose their jobs over it, which suggests that the voters, you know, because you're saying on the one hand, this looks really bad, it erodes trust, blah, 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 which I totally agree with. I think it's a perfectly defensible, you know, incorrect position. But then on the other hand, the voters closest to the actual politician with the most power to actually do something about the specific politician who's doing these terrible things, they never vote them out of office. So like, how do you, how do you reconcile this? It's like, you know, people say you're trying to foment a populist uprising. Well, why aren't there many populist uprisings against the specific politicians? And then I'll tie this to Trump after you answer the question, because I have the connective tissue. When, let me say about the populist uprising, I do believe it's important uh, for all of us that we fix these problems. And if you're a rich person, you should really want to fix the populist uprising. And as I write in the book, you know, not only do you not want the mob showing up at your door with torches and lanterns and pitchforks, it's much better to have them showing up with well-typed resumes. So that's kind of my, that's my vision. Um, but look, yeah, uh, just in the last election cycle, like in the 22 midterms, there were many examples of this. Uh, Dan, uh, Daniel Goldman, who's heir to the Levi Strauss fortune, won a crowded Democratic primary in New York, even though, you know, he'd never been elected to anything uh, kind of, you know, other candidates, I think, were more qualified for the position. He had the most money. They tried to use his wealth against him in the primary very explicitly. It obviously didn't work, right? John Hoven, a U.S. senator from North Dakota, uh, very, very wealthy, um, has in the in the decade or so that he's been in the U.S. Senate, he's doubled. He's gone from like twenty million to forty million net worth. His opponents used it, didn't go anywhere, didn't 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 matter. Uh, Don Beyer, uh, they're in Northern Virginia. He's a big car dealer. By the way, a lot of these filthy rich politicians are car dealers, like a disproportionate number of them. And they almost all got PPP funding for what that's worth. If you want to, if you want to, you know, show up at his door with, with a lantern <laughs> and a pitchfork. Uh, Don Beyer, uh, this was used against him in his primary in 2022. Didn't go anywhere. Didn't work. And, uh, even I always thought a really interesting, Thing was George Santos, right? George Santos lied about a lot of stuff. So when it came to like his ethnic heritage and his sexual orientation, things like that, he really tried to stress his minority outsider status. But when it came to his pedigree and his wealth, he stressed, he actually lied and overemphasized his wealth, uh, and, and, uh, and sophistication and education and things like that. And so I do think it is this weird paradox, Jonah, and maybe, and maybe it's as simple as the whole, um, you know, cliche about how people hate politics, hate Congress, but love their congressmen. Like it may just be as simple as that. Uh, but for whatever reason, um, I think it is very clear that that this sense that politicians are richer again the average member of congress is 12 times richer than the than the average american household and it's not just me uh there's data in my book to back it up things like Pew research center polls gallup polls uh 
there is you know, there is certainly evidence that that this is eroding trust in the system. And yet, for whatever reason, and I I you know I'm speculating here, but we don't know. But it just seems very clear that if you're a political consultant and you're running against a rich guy, don't make a big deal out of it because it's probably not going to work, or at least it's not going to. The benefit, I'll put it to you this way, the benefits of being rich outweigh the potential PR downside of being rich. Yeah. So the reason, so the reason I brought this up is that I think, you know, because Riley's, you know, for fear of getting what about it about Trump, he brought up Trump in comparison to Biden and all that. First of all, it may turn out that none of these allegations hurt Joe Biden at all. Right. I mean, in fact, we knew some of them going into the 2020 election and they didn't do anything. Right. And um, I understand that there's a certain segment of the sort of Fox aligned, you know, audience that is obsessed with these allegations and thinks that they are um, just one bombshell after another, the sort of Mary Bartiromo caucus, right? And they may be right. Again, I'm keeping my powder dry, but I'm withholding every possibility that Biden is actually guilty of a lot of horrible, terrible things. Because, and, and, in, in this, at least in this regard, but it does feel like, to the extent that this stuff sticks more to Biden than it does to Trump, is because there's no hypocrisy in Trump about this. Trump basically nodded and winked and told people he was corrupt, and people <laughs> assumed he was corrupt. Yeah, he's a honest liar, is what Dave Chappelle said on SNL, and I think that was a brilliant observation. Yeah, and then, and meanwhile, Biden has this. I'm better than you. I'm, I'm honorable kind of thing. And I, and this is one of my great peeves and of our, of our culture is that people get are much more angry about hypocrisy than they are about actual bad behavior. And, and that maybe that's why it cuts differently for Biden than it does for Trump or maybe not. Well, I definitely think that it's true that, um, you know, Donald Trump's credibility has never been based on integrity or character. And, and therefore, as the Eagles saying, I'm already standing on the ground. You can't let me down. I'm already on the ground, whatever that was. Um, but look, I think there's another point here uh, that ties into your question. Now, uh, the last question, and that's this. I think that our outrage receptors have been burned out, partly by Trump and partly by just the fact that Nancy Pelosi, the stuff that I described. Or, you know, the other thing is, Jonah, it's not, so the way that the insider trading works, it's kind of like steroids, okay? Like in baseball, people think that uh, if you take steroids, it's going to make, the reason, people think the reason players take steroids is that it's going to make them jack and hit the ball farther. And that does happen, but that's not the reason people take steroids. The, The real benefit to steroids is injury recovery. You recover from injuries much quicker. The same thing is true with insider trading in Congress. People think the reason you do insider trading is to make a lot of money. And that does happen and it can happen. And I think the Pelosi's presumably have done that. But the real reason that you do insider trading is to not lose money. And so one of the things that I talk about in my book, Filthy Rich Politicians, uh, that one's for Tebby Troy. Um, <laughs> the, one of the things I talk about is how, and I think this is really, really scummy and, and uh, distasteful, but 
it's during times of crisis and great change that this really matters, right? So it's during the Obamacare battle, people cash in. Um, during COVID-19 is a classic example, right? You have Senator Richard Burr. At the time, he's chair of the Intel Committee. So he's privy to all sorts of classified meetings and information that you and I didn't have, okay? So COVID is hitting. The average American, though, does not, at this point, did not realize how bad COVID was really going to be. So Burr dumps hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of stock and things like Wyndham Hotels, right? The kinds of things that might not fare well in a global pandemic. Then here's the worst part. He picks up the phone and he calls his brother-in-law. Within one minute of hanging up the phone with Burr, his brother-in-law calls his broker and dumps like $100,000 or more worth of his stock. So that, I think, really erodes and, and disgusts people. And I guess here's my point, is that when Americans, I think right now we are fed up and we're past the point of being outraged. Right now, we're kind of apathetic about it. Like we have accepted this. We have accepted this low-grade corruption as normal. And I think that kind of explains the situation. Like when you are disgusted and you've given up, you may lose faith in liberal democracy, but that's not going to stop you from voting for your congressman, Don Beyer or John Hoven, right? Because you need them to bring home the bacon to North Dakota or to whatever, whatever, even an ideological to do to fight the left, you know, to fight the trans community or, or, or whatever. So uh, it is a weird paradox, but, but I do think that this is an important issue and yet it doesn't show up at the ballot box. So, you're, so we were talking about this before, and you know, this, this is a point I often bring up is that people misuse the word oligarchy. I checked, you don't. I'm, I'm, I was worried. Thank you. <laughs> I have to correct you. But, you know, because oligarchy is rule of the few. It's not rule of the rich. And the problem is, is that the only time you ever hear of an oligarch is when they're crazy rich. So people understandably assume that oligarch means rich, basically because of Russia. Is it plutocracy? Plutocracy is money, a rule by the richest, right? And like, uh, but oligarch is just ruled by the few. And you could have a post-liberal integralist order where there were just a handful of cardinals who ran everything. I mean, like there are all sorts of different things and they wouldn't necessarily have to be rich. But the, the, the public choice theorist in me, to the extent such a homunculus exists, points out that the problem is, is that when you have rule of the few, it's really easy for the few to then get rich. And it's also much easier to become a member of the few if you are rich, right? And so that's sort of your point about, you know, either the rich get elected and the elected get rich, which is a nice way of making the exact same point, which is why I liked it. But so I want to ask you sort of a sociological question of the things that truly offend you, right? Because you have to read all of these case studies and you write them all up and it's, it's very easily, I, I highly recommend the book for people interested in this stuff because it's, it's very readable. Um, you can pick it up and put it down. You can just, it's a great book for index surfing the politicians you like the most or hate the most. Um, but in totality, the people who did the, the ickiest stuff, were they already rich when they got to Congress? Or did they become, or, or public office, were they already rich when they went for public office? Or did they become rich while in public office, right? So is it the strivers the, who 
really cut corners to get rich once they got in office? Or is it the guys who were, you know, who should have had some noblesse oblige, but just couldn't help themselves? Well, it's con- it's a confusing question because they're almost all rich uh-huh. when they get there, right? So it's gradations. I would say the rich... Yeah, but you say Marjorie Taylor Greene is worth $5 million. $5 million in terms of national aggregate statistics, that absolutely makes her rich and all that kind of stuff. But it's a difference in degree when you're talking about like, so her house is probably worth like a million and a half and then she's got a business and whatever. It's different than, you know, Daryl is who's worth like a quarter billion dollars or something like that, right? I mean, they're just different things. I would say if I if I had to choose that the the filthiest, the like the the people who come to Congress or the Senate with the most money. And by the way, so the richest politician in America right now is actually not in Congress. It's J.B. Pritzker, who is governor of Illinois. He's one uh, is heir to uh, I think it's the Hyatt fortune, uh, one of 11 billionaires in his family. There were three billionaires who ran for governor of Illinois last cycle. Amazing. <laughs> the richest, I, we believe it's, it's impossible to know exactly uh, the net politicians hide, find ways to hide and, and their net worth. But uh, it seems like Rick Scott is probably the richest member of Congress right now. Um, the way that he earned his money seems to have been in a somewhat sketchy, questionable way. Um, but as far as I know, and I don't like his politics, but as far as I know, he's not cashing in and his job and the same thing. So I think if I had to choose, I would say it's more the strivers who are engaging in uh, the bad behavior than the truly like people worth a hundred million dollars. Like they probably don't really need to, but they're making so much off of interest uh, anyway. Right. And, and even in the case of, and I think it's a really interesting point that I had not occurred to me is that most of the insider trading is a hedge against losses and not uh, a search for windfall profits, which makes total sense once you say it, but I hadn't really thought about it. But if you're worth, if, if you're worth a couple hundred million dollars and you know, if you do something shady to save yourself $5 million, which you can probably write off partly on your taxes anyway, it's the price of the scandal exceeds the value in your discretionary you know, wealth um, of taking the hit. But if you're someone who's came to Congress kind of middle class or clo- middle class adjacent and you've gotten rich and now you're looking at losing a big chunk of it, you could see how you would be willing to take the hit in a way that, you know, one of the mega rich wouldn't. Yeah, I think that's it just it makes sense from a rational standpoint. And I have to say, uh, so, Jonah, one of the one of the reforms that I call for and filthy rich politicians is uh, I actually changed my mind on. But it sort of speaks to this point and it's term limits. I used to be vehemently opposed to term limits. I've actually changed my mind on it. And I do think one of the uh, uh, result, if we had term limits, one of the things it would do would be mitigate the, the possibility that someone could really ca- cash in over the course of many, many years um, off, of their, off of their position. I'm not sure I'm with you on that one. I mean, like, it's certainly a benefit. Like, if we're doing a list of pros and cons about why to do term limits and not preventing people from getting fat fat off the public fisc is one. But you could also have the perverse incentive of encouraging people to say, 
crap, I'm only going to be here for a yeah. little while. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. I'm not going to be up in the Klondike <laughs> panning gold for my whole life. So I better hurry, you know? And, um, and I can just see, you know, it, it's so character dependent. I, on the broader thing about term limits, I just go back and forth on it. I mean, I respect people who take your position because I, there are days of the week where I take your position, but like, I still worry about what it, I, I would much rather get cameras out of Congress. Yeah. Um, there are a bunch of things that I would rather do. Um, well, and, and here's something I know that's near and dear to your heart, Jonah, uh, which is not in my book, but I think would help is it's uncapping the house. I mean, I think if we had more members of Congress that that would go a long way towards solving the, the part of the problem where people feel like a disconnect that their member, their member of Congress is so much richer than they are and so much more elite than they are. And I think if, if we had a larger house, like if we quadrupled the size of it or something like that, uh, I think it would help this problem. Yeah. I mean, and again, I think it's worth, I mean, not to get all you've all of in here, but like, it's worth asking the question, is the problem plutocracy or is the problem oligarchy? Right. And um, because you, you, you phrase it as congressmen who are so much richer than they are and so much more elite. And they're not necessarily the same thing. Right. And um, like the high status that comes from being one of 435, that was not always, you know, it was it was not necessarily always the case. I mean, and the problem is and again, it's this chicken or the egg thing. Right. Is are they getting rich because status gives you opportunities for wealth? Or, you know, are they wealthy, which is giving them opportunities for status? And obviously it's both and, not either or. But, um, yeah, expanding the Congress, it seems to me like it makes it less elite. It also gives the opportunity, not just in terms of that there are more of them, but it gives more people the opportunity to cycle through, right? And to be part of that, which makes it seem more accessible and less oligarchical and, and to some extent less plutocratic um so i don't know i mean i i agree with you i agree with you when you say i'm right um, <laughs> <laughs> um all right so very quickly i know we're, we're going along here um and and points for you if you can get filthy rich politicians into these answers how are you feeling just generally about the gop these days i had a, a very good friend of mine whose name you would recognize but i won't out him uh texted me this morning asking me on a zero to 10, how much do I despair for American politics and the Republican party these days? And, um, I can tell you my answer later, but, um, it was interesting hearing from him, from this person, um, who's normally much more upbeat than I am. Um, so where, where do you come down? Do you think the worst is behind us or the worst is ahead of us? Oh man, that is a tough question. I certainly hope the worst is behind us. But what bothers me is that it's clearly not just Donald Trump. I mean, and we always knew that, right? I mean, even in 2015, 2016 or whatever, we knew that like Donald Trump is a symptom of a problem, that we have a, a culture problem that led us to want Donald Trump and, and for Donald Trump to be successful. But I still think there was a chance that if Trump and Trumpism had sort of been humiliated and defeated, um, that there, there were multiple opportunities along the way. 
where I thought it, there was a chance that we, we would never go back. You know, we're not going to go back to like Mitt Romney, John McCain, but but that we could end up with a um, benign populism, you know, something like um, a hybrid approach where, you know, we're, we're sort of protectionist, but we're still decent and compassionate and, you know, like a Scott Walker type situation or something like that. Right. Um, but I do have to say that what I'm seeing, like from Ron DeSantis, and I, I would still vote for DeSantis over Trump simply because Trump's the only person that I know who's ever tried to stop the peaceful transfer of power. But the stuff that I'm seeing from Ron DeSantis, um, who's by far, you know, clearly the second place, you know, if you add up Trump's 50% and DeSantis is 20 or 30% or whatever it is, that adds up. Um, that doesn't give me hope, Jonah. And it seems to me that like, you've got the Trump contingent, which is sort of like, you know, folks who go to Walmart and kind of good old boys um, with the rebel flags and or whatever, you know, and then you've got DeSantis, which are these like very online Blake Masters, Josh Hawley, like dark web intellectual, but very disturbed. You know, just this is to say, Jonah, I am not optimistic right now. And I do, I'll, I'll, you know, let me say something good. I like the way, I, you know, I, I like Tim Scott. I don't like all the pandering he's had to do, but I like that he's optimistic. Um, and I would, if he ends up being like, here's how something, here's how it could turn out okay. Tim Scott becomes Donald Trump's vice president. Tim Scott becomes president, right? Like if that were to happen, maybe, maybe that's like God saving us. Um, and, you know, Chris Christie, you know, he's at 3% maybe, but, you know, he's out there plugging away. Uh, There's a poll now. I saw him. He's at 10% in New Hampshire. That's kind of the what matters, right? Yeah, Not yeah. I mean, I, I, I get so yeah. tired of it. I mean, I, I understand why we all pay attention to it, but the national poll thing, like, if let's just say Chris Christie won in New Hampshire. And I, I want to be really clear. I have been remarkably hard on Chris Christie over the last seven, <laughs> eight years. I mean, and I still haven't truly forgiven him, but he's showing me something. Um, but if Chris Christie won New Hampshire, Chris Christie would arguably become the front runner. You know, I mean, like certainly if DeSantis won New Hampshire, I think Trump loses 30 points, you know, yeah. because like what if, happens if, if DeSantis wins Iowa, like, and Christie wins New Hampshire. So Trump goes over two. Um, I was just talking to, you know, Mike Murphy, the Republican strategist on my little podcast, Matt Lewis in the news. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I learned from Debbie. Um, and uh, Mike still says that Trump will not be the nominee. And I, I do not share. I do not share his his optimism, but he thinks Trump's going to go over two and then then it's off to the races. So I just I have not officially rescinded my position from months ago. like. Uh, end of 2022, I think, that neither DeSantis nor Trump nor Biden <laughs> <laughs> will be uh, the major party candidates. And um, I am less confident in that. Um, I'm less confident in two of those three components um, than I was back then. But I have not, I have not formally rescinded my position. And, and I was heartened to see uh, George Will coming and to essentially, you know, buck me up at least on two of them. So we'll see. 
but um, I agree. I mean, I, I, I've said this the last two times I was on CNN now, but it does feel right now, and that, that's the important caveat because straight line projections are stupid, but it feels right now that we are poised to repeat the 2016 mistake of nominating two candidates so unbelievably unpopular that they have a legitimate chance of losing to the other one. And that's, that's no way to run a grown up country. You know, it's just too ancient. I mean, everyone talks about how old Biden is. Biden's like what, five years older, six years older, four years older than, than Trump. I mean, it's not like it's, it's the, major categorical differences in age um, or in craziness, to be honest. Um, it's just Biden's presents more geriatric than Trump's does. Oh, I think that's right. It's uh, the Iran Iraq war. I don't know what the analogy is, but it's, it's, it's not, not good, Bob. Are you from West Virginia or you just live in West Virginia? So I'm actually from Western Maryland. Um, my dad was a prison guard in Hagerstown for 30 really? years. Hagerstown, Maryland. Yeah. I know Hager's. I can tell you stories about that gig, um, as you can imagine. Uh, so I'm not far. Like so, so I'm from between Frederick and Hagerstown, Maryland, which is very, very close to West Virginia. I actually went to college in West Virginia in Shepherdstown, uh -huh. and my wife is from West Virginia. That's why we live in West Virginia, um, and it's pretty cool. Uh, you know, we moved out like sort of right around the time COVID was hitting and I started coaching little league and, you know, joined a church out here. And, um, for what I do, you know, writing about politics and culture and conservatism, it's been refreshing to kind of come back to a rural, a rural area. And, uh, I think it helped me with the book kind of with my, my perspective as I'm, as I'm balancing kind of understanding the plight of working class folks versus like, I also don't think politicians are inherently evil and I don't think rich people are inherently bad either. So um, I think that the yin and the yang of like having lived in DC, but also coming from and having and living now in West Virginia um, has been helpful. Um, yeah. Just there's, there's, uh, it's always surprising me how many people, I end up knowing from West Virginia, you know, I mean, obviously Chris Dyerwald yeah. is the head of the ex, I can't say ex West Virginian because he's, we'll always say he always. is a West Virginian. But. Well, you know, William Sapphire, I think had a place in Harper's Ferry, like a, a weekend house, uh, Jack German, uh -huh. the legendary Baltimore, uh, whatever newspaper man, my best, group guy. best title of a, of a memoir maybe ever. Fat man in the middle seat. Fat man in the middle That's seat. Right. <laughs> he lived in Charlestown, West Virginia, and I'm pretty sure it's solely because there's a racetrack there. Possibly. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't want to, uh, I have a, I have a dear friend whose dad was a big journalist who um, was out there a lot for, for precisely those reasons. And we'll just leave it oblique. They'll know <laughs> who I'm talking about. Let the record, let the record show I've been there precisely one time in the last five years. And it was because that's where you had to go to get your vaccine. Is that right? It was amazing. Yeah. So, uh, I think I can reveal this Charles Murray, who's a good friend. I know that bothers some people, but suck it up. He has spent a good deal of time in Charlestown playing poker because he's mm -hmm. a very, very good, very serious poker player. 
and it's like the the poker table for him is what my cigar shop is for me. It's like the most democratic small D thing I do. Right? Is like just a weird cross section of people and like Charles Murray, the most notorious social scientist of the last half century, is sitting around with like you know truck drivers and mechanics playing you know Texas Hold'em, um, having a grand old time. Um, he's invited me to go. I just never got around to it. And whether you're like, you know, going to a fishing hole or a, br- a greasy spoon diner or like my church where we, the church I go to now puts the fun and fundamentalist, um, or whether you're at the race. Is there a guitar? Do you have a guitar? You know what? Believe it or not, even though this is like a fundamentalist church, they take their music really seriously. And there is like a teen rock band. Uh, that performs like once a year, but it's basically violins and really good string or orchestral. It, it's, it's, it defies, it defies stereotype really. Um, but, but whether, you know, whether you're sort of in that world or, or at the casino, I think it's good to be around weird, interesting, different, diverse people and experiences. And if you're a writer, it's healthy to, to do yeah. that. I mean, I have some announcements coming down the pike on this podcast about in that regard. But um, uh, that's one of the big reasons why my wife and I love driving cross country, you know, is you realize, first of all, how little the rest of the country really gives a rat's ass about politics. And, um, and you realize just how big and fundamentally decent the country is. I mean, it's a, it, I mean, look, they're jerks everywhere, but like, this is a good country full of good people, you know, and it's prettier and more, and weirder than people want to believe it is. Absolutely. You know, and I've heard stories about people like, you know, our, our friend David French and Eric Erickson, who had these experiences where like MAGA people showed up at their door and like intimidated them and stuff like that. And maybe it speaks to my like lack of fame. <laughs> I'm not sure why, but for whatever reason, I have to say, like, my personal, and thank God for this, but my personal experience has been. And being around rural areas, people who I know my church voted 99% for Trump. Yeah. And like everyone's super nice. And if if your car broke down in the middle of the night, they would come and fix your tire for you. And that is, I think, inspiring and uplifting. And and it, it was after being on Twitter all day at my job, that helps heal my soul. So yeah. I'm, I'm happy to have that outlet. All right, my friend, Matt Lewis, the book is, in case you missed it, Filthy Rich Politicians. It is now available wherever your finer books are sold. Matt also has a wonderful podcast, and thanks for coming on, and hope to have you back. Hey, the pleasure's all on this side of the table, Jonah. All right, so Dr. Lewis has left the building. I do recommend the book. It's if getting angry at the sorry state of our crapulent politics is your bag baby then it's a good book to get um and uh you know matt's a great writer and it's a lot of fun to sort of go through and i spent about an hour before recording the podcast just saying to my wife can you believe this so there you have it that's all i got for you i'm tired it's saturday it's hot out it's really hot it's hot it's like it's like fat man armpit hot out there. It's just terrible. Um, so stay inside, preferably with a spaniel or a dingo. And uh, 
I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>